0: Indeed, dear friends, as we have sung, great is thy faithfulness. And it is a faithfulness that is renewed every morning. All I have needed, the songwriter says, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Friends, one of the common things that we all experience in life is discouragement sooner or later more often than we want it to be we experience discouragement some of you this morning have come in with hearts that are discouraged some of you have experienced discouragement in your life and you know the depths and the darkness of that discouragement the hopelessness that often exists, that comes, comes alongside with discouragement. Others, we may have it again in the near future. We all need to be prepared for it. And This morning, we want to look at a passage in which God speaks to the discouragement of his own people. Isaiah chapter 49, we'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, ch- uh, verse 26. Would you open God's word to the book of Isaiah chapter 49? If you are visiting us this morning, we're so glad that you're with us. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage in our pew Bibles on page number 609. 609, this is where we find God's word for our hearts this morning. Isaiah 49, here is the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me me away and he said to me you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified but I said I have labored in vain I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth thus says the lord the redeemer of israel and his holy one to one deeply despised abhorred by the nation the servant of rulers kings shall see and arise princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the lord who is faithful The holy one of Israel who has chosen you thus says the Lord in a time of favor I have answered you in a day of salvation I have helped you I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages saying to prisoners come out to those who are in darkness appear they shall feed Along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these From the north and from the west, and these from the land of Zion, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely, your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children. Of your bereavement will yet say in your ears the places are too narrow for me make room for me to dwell in then you will say in your heart who has borne me these i was bereaved and barren exiled and put away but who has brought up these behold i was left alone from where have these come Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. And they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, you reveal to us in your word, your mighty power, a power to save, even from circumstances that seem so bleak and so hopeless. Lord, would you show us this morning, once again, your mighty power. Would you enable our hearts to see you in a way that our souls can trust in you and turn to you and you alone. We pray that you would help us see. We pray that you would encourage our hearts to see and to embrace your mighty power of a God who is able to save. We pray that you would be exalted in our midst this morning. And your name would be glorified as a result of the proclamation of your word. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Friends, as we are making our way through the book of Isaiah, As we're looking at chapter 49, we want to remember where we were so far in the book. Last Sunday, in chapter 48, the chapter closed with God calling his people, his exiled people, a people who are in bondage. God called them to leave Babylon, to leave the place of bondage, and to declare to the whole earth that God is redeeming his servant Jacob. in case anyone would consider staying behind in Babylon in case anyone became comfortable with Babylon and would cringe at the thought of going back to their homeland to rebuild a desolate place in case anyone would consider remaining in Babylon God gave them a serious warning at the end of chapter 48 God said there's no peace Says the Lord, for the wicked. There's some in among the exiles of Babylon that might consider, after staying in Babylon for 70 years, they gotten used to the land. They start building their houses there. Some may think that the, the peace is now there in this new land that they have gotten to. And yet, to be rebellious against the word of the Lord. To fail to do what God calls His people to do, namely to leave Babylon, is to be wicked. To be part of those who continue to rebel against the Lord. And the Lord says, there is no peace. There is no peace for those who continue to remain rebellious against what the Lord says. In chapter 49, the story of God calling His people out of Babylon continues on and in chapter 49 we are given a picture of how is it that God will bring his people back we have seen earlier in in, in the earlier chapters in chapter 45 that God planned for for a pagan king a Persian king king Cyrus to be the the military leader who would, who would enact the, 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 the battle against Babylon and rescue God's people and destroy Babylon but but the rescue God is talking about in the book of Isaiah is not just a physical rescue. In chapter 49, we get to hear of a greater rescue, of a greater servant. So the servant of the Lord appears again. And the servant of the Lord now introduces himself. He himself speaks about his mission. And just a review, in the book of Isaiah, the figure of the servant of the Lord has a number of of reference we have seen uh, the first time the the servant of the Lord was introduced in uh, chapter 45 referred to Cyrus this pagan Persian king but prior even to Cyrus the Lord has introduced a serve his servant as referring to uh, to his people the servant Jacob the nation of Israel that was exiled into Babylon but even before that in chapter 42 God spoke about a special servant who was neither King Cyrus nor even the people of Israel. He was a special servant with a special mission who was sent by the Lord to rescue the people of God. This special servant showed up in chapter 42. Now he shows up again in chapter 49. And we'll see him show up again in chapter 50. And then again for the fourth time in chapter 52 and 53. But in this text, in our passage, this servant of the Lord, who is neither King Cyrus nor the nation of Israel, but a special servant, he now speaks. He speaks to us. And he speaks to the nations. And as he speaks, we get to hear about his mission, we get to hear about his discouragement. We get to hear about what God will do through the servant. But as we look at as we look at this speech, as this testimony of the special servant of the Lord, we realize that he is discouraged at one point. And we realize that God speaks to the discouragement of his servant. And as we look through this chapter, we notice that it's not only the servant, the special servant discouraged, but God's own people are discouraged. In each case, both the servant, the special servant, and God's people, each of them deal differently with their discouragement. And to each of their discouragements, God speaks a special word. So this morning, as we look at this chapter, as a story unfolds in the book of Isaiah, we will look at a discouraged but trusting servant. And then we will look at a discouraged but accusing people. We will look at a discouraged but trusting servant. And we will look at a discouraged but accusing people. Let's look at the first half of this chapter. The first point, the the servant of the Lord. A discouraged but trusting servant. This chapter begins with uh, this personal testimony that the servant of the Lord gives. If in chapter 42, the servant of the Lord was introduced and described by God. In chapter 49, he introduces himself and he describes himself and his purpose. He's fully aware of the mission that the Lord has given him. Notice in verse 1 how this servant of the Lord speaks. He says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Now, why is this introduction important? In the book of Isaiah, only God has been used or described as as demanding the attention of the nations, Only, only the God of Israel has this authority to demand the nations to listen to him for he has a word to speak to the nations and interestingly this characteristic is now taken on by the servant of the lord this is no special servant this is not just the nation of israel the special servant from god speaks now to the nations and demands them to listen it's amazing When he begins speaking about himself, he says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. So we know that this servant of the Lord has a human body. He's an incarnate being. He's not just a literary figure. He's a real person. And then the next thing that this servant says about himself is that the Lord made my mouth. He says, He made my mouth. Like a sharp sword. Now it's amazing that the first description this servant brings up about himself is to say and describe his mouth. And he says that God made his mouth like a sharp sword. An interesting picture. If we get to read the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, one of the first descriptions of Jesus Christ, the exalted Son of God is that he appears to John, having a mouth from which a sword comes out. A double-edged sword. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is ascribed five times as having a mouth from which a double-edged sword comes out. Let me just read one of those references. Revelation 1.16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength." The servant of the Lord in Isaiah is describing himself as having a mouth like a sharp sword. And this picture points further, points uh, forward to Christ. This imagery tells us a very important feature about the work of this special servant in Isaiah. This special servant, why would his mouth be like a double-edged sword or like a sharp sword? Is because he's going to win battles. This, this servant of the Lord will win battles, but the battles that he wins are won not with physical weapons, no. The weapons that he uses are his mouth, it's his mouth. what comes out of his mouth, his word. His word is sufficient to win battles. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul challenges believers to take on the armor of God. But it's not a physical armor. We're not talking about the the crusades here. That's not the kind of battle that that Paul is telling us to take on. No, it's a spiritual armor. And Paul gets to describe uh, the armor. And when he gets to describe the sword... Paul says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Amazing. The Word of God is a sword. That's why, dear friends, as a church, we esteem the Word of God. That's why we make it central in our life as a church. That's why it's a significant part of what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings is to listen to God's Word proclaimed. Friends, one of the ways you can check and see, if you're visiting us this morning and you're you, you, you check out churches. One of the ways to see whether or not a church is, is putting the Word of God to be central in its life and worship is li- simply to look at the clock and see how much time of their service is spent on the preaching of the Word. And you can get a sense of how important the Word of God is for that congregation. Just look and see if if they even open the Bible and actually read from this book. See if they actually pay attention to what God says. The Word of God is a sword. And He, the servant, can win battles through anything that comes out of His mouth. Also, this is why when we come to hear God's Word, friends, we come to realize that when we come to gather as a congregation and hear God's word, we come not only to be comforted, but we also come to be pierced. We want to equip one another to speak the word of God, to encourage one another by applying scripture in our lives. But we realize that oftentimes when we apply the word of God, when we speak the word of God, It's not only to build up, it's not only to edify, it's also to to cut, to pierce. One of the ways you can can pray for us as a congregation, you can pray for us as members of this church, is that we would grow in using the Word of God in our lives, and speaking one another God's Word. This means that when we gather together to hear God's Word, we should be open to expect that when He speaks... might cut. After all, that's what swords do. To cut off the thoughts of our hearts that are impure. To cut off the thoughts of our hearts that are idolatrous. To cut off from our hearts inclinations that are rebellious. The word of God, what comes out of the mouth of the servant, is a a sharp sword so it can cut what comes out of the mouth of the servant is aimed at piercing our hearts no wonder that the author of hebrews described the word of god as being living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart That's what the Word of God does. It's not just there to to comfort us, although it does comfort us often. It also cuts. The servant of the Lord is also a polished arrow. Look at verse 2. He made me, the servant says, he made me an arrow. Now if the sword is used for targets that are near the warrior... The arrow is used for targets that are far off. In other words, God is making his servant to be effective not only nearby, but also far off. The word of the servant will be effective not only where he's physically present, but also in far regions. At one point, Jesus was asked by a Roman centurion to come and heal his servant. And Jesus wanted to go physically to the centurion's house. And then centurion said, oh no, you don't, you don't need to come to my house. Just say a word. And my servant will be healed. It's that picture where Jesus doesn't have to be physically there to be effective. He is able to pierce. He's able to, he's able to arrive. His word is able to be effective far off as well. The mission of the servant is to win a battle. It's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle for our hearts. It's a battle for our thoughts. It's a battle for the affections and for the allegiances of our hearts. Spurgeon said, The great weapon of God against sin is his son, Jesus Christ. God has no such means of smitting evil or affecting his purposes of love as his own dear son. This is a polished shaft which Jehovah delights to use. Friends, I wonder if you realize that Jesus Christ is not just a a friend, a cozy friend. He is a polished sparrow, arrow. He is a sharp sword that God uses to battle. To battle in our hearts to battle against the, the strongholds of darkness whether it's in our hearts or minds or thoughts or in the hearts of others the this, this special servant knows he's aware that God is sending him on a special mission he is also aware that God will be glorified in him look at verse 3 the special servant says that God said about him you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified Now, some people are amazed that God would call the servant by the name of Israel. For some people think, well, this must be the nation of Israel. Well, it cannot be the nation of Israel. Because in verse 5, we see that the servant's mission is to bring back Israel back to God. So the servant must be someone else other than the nation of Israel. Here, God calls his servant by the name of Israel. Because the servant will take on the identity of his people. He will live as a substitute for the people of God. The servant will relive the story of Israel. But where Israel failed, the servant will succeed. And more so, the servant of the Lord will accomplish everything that God desires for him to accomplish. He will accomplish way more than Israel, the nation, was ever able to accomplish. And God will be truly glorified through his servant. Yet, despite the self-description, despite the fact that God called the servant from the womb, despite the fact that God made his mouth to be like a sword and like, a, like an arrow, despite the fact that God has called the servant and, and will be glorified in the servant, notice the discouragement the servant feels. Verse 4. This, this special servant says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. The discouragement that this servant feels seems to be caused by a lack of seeing visible results. (laughs) Do you ever get discouraged because you don't see the results you expect? Do you ever get discouraged because you don't see the progress that you hoped for perhaps you have certain expectations from life perhaps you have made certain plans and there's so little result visible result well this servant his work seems to have a similar feature so few so little results many bible interpreters see that this lack of fruit that the servant seems to be observing about his ministry might be a reference to how his own people received him. Indeed, the Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus came to his own people, his own people did not receive him. Worse, they rejected him. They preferred a king as a king over them a Roman king rather than God's special servant what a discouragement to come to the very people to whom God sent you to be their Redeemer and they're turning their backs on you so in that sense the servant of the Lord knew that there would be a reason for him to be discouraged because in his own lifetime the very people to which he came rejected him and there were not many They were not many followers of him at the end of his life. But notice what the servant does to quiet down his discouragement. Notice verse 4. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. We can feel the weight of discouragement, dear friends, when when we turn our attention to ourselves, to our work to the visible results we expect. And when such results are lacking, our hearts easily fill up with discouragement. Friends, in the, in the first years of my pastorate here, as a, a, being a pastor here in, in this congregation, I often dealt with the discouragement. I remember one of you telling me at some point that you had hoped that, Um, that this church hired me as a young pastor hoping that many young families would begin flooding in quickly and years passed by and and none of those results happened not not right away my own heart dealt with that discouragement and I had to realize it's what what is it Lord it's possible that when we don't see the results immediately that we expect our hearts easily go into the mode of discouragement But notice what the servant does in his discouragement. He takes his gaze away from himself, away from the results he expected. And the servant turns his gaze to God. And he not only turns his attention to God, but he trusts that his rightness is with the Lord. He trusts that the Lord has a recompense for him, even though he sees little physical results around him. Oh, friends, what an encouragement this is. In a society that wants to see quick results and visible progress, the servant's discouragement and his eagerness for the Lord's reward is a great challenge for us. I wonder, can our hearts, can our hearts be reoriented away from physical immediate results to the reward that the Lord himself promises to bring us? Is it possible that for some of us, the immediate results of our work is more important than the Lord's reward? And we may fall into the deep pits of discouragement because our hearts cherish more the immediate results than the Lord's reward. If you are discouraged, ask yourself, is the Lord's reward enough? certainly we all want the immediate results we all want to see visible progress around us and the lord promised to give it but the timing of it is not up to us so when the lord chooses to take us through seasons when those physical results are not immediately apparent ask yourself in those moments is the lord's reward enough or do you need to have immediate results in order to be satisfied? Friends, so much of our discouragements would fade away if we could reorient the hungers of our souls away from the immediate results to the reward that God is preparing for us in His timing. That's what the, Lord, the servant of the Lord did. The Lord uh, responds to the servant's discouragement in verses 5 to 12. We see three answers from the Lord in, in, in how, he, how God responds to the discouragement of his servant. First of all, the Lord expands the servant's ministry. In verses 5 through 6, we get one of the, the most beautiful promises that God gives to his servant. He says, and now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, and this is what the Lord says to his servant who has been discouraged. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Friends, the Lord repeats the calling of the servant. The Lord also declares that the mission of the servant was first of all to bring back his people, not merely to the land, but that, God would, that, that the servant would bring back his people back to God. And the servant realizes that this can happen not on his strength, but only as God is his strength. And then God expands the mission of the servant, not only to gather the people of Israel, but all the nations. This is one of the glorious promises in the Old Testament, that God has sent a special servant Not just for an ethnic people, but for all the peoples of the earth. The light that the nations need is this servant of the Lord. And God makes this servant to be the light. Not only to bring the light, but to be the light. He's not only the the, the servant who, who sheds light on God's people. He is the servant who is the light for God's people. And when the light of the servant reaches the nations, God Brings his salvation to the ends of the earth. Dear friends. You realize that had God not promised this prophecy in the Old Testament. None of us were not Jews. None of us would be here today. All of us except art. All of us. All of us. We would have no right. No hope that we have come to know. Of this salvation, none of us. But even from the Old Testament, God told His servant that the mission God gives him is so that His salvation would reach the ends of the earth, so that this servant might be the light for the nations. The Lord also promises a servant as a way to respond to the servant's discouragement. He said, "The Lord promises to, reserve, to reverse." The servant's rejection in verse 7. God describes his servant and speaks to him and describes him as one deeply despised, as one abhorred by his own people. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. In other words, this prophecy speaks clearly that the servant's work (laughs) will not be glorious at first yes god said that he will glorify himself in the servant but now we find out that the servant's work is not going to be glorious at first if anything it's going to be deeply despised abhorred the entire nation to which god initially sent the servant will abhor the servant oh friends there is no greater despisement and and abhorration than being crucified. This is what the nation of Israel did through the hands of the Romans to the servant. The servant was perhaps the most humiliated of all human beings. The one who was perfect with no sin, with no imperfection, ended up being laying with his arms outstretched, abhorred, deeply despised by the nation. The path of rejection, of being despised and abhorred, is a path of the servant. But the Lord says, but that path is only temporary. God says that he will reverse the tables and the kings will bow down before God's servant. Why? Who will cause this reversal? Because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen this servant. The reason why the servant can plow through his discouragement and have hope despite the path of deep, deep discouragement, despite the path of being abhorred and despised, despite all that, the servant has reasons to have hope. Why? Because the Lord will reverse the tables. Why? Because God is faithful. That's why we sang earlier in the service great is thy faithfulness. God adds this great reversal because of his faithfulness to his own servant. And then the Lord gives a final reason. The Lord will make the servant to be a covenant. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a time of salvation, in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. In other words, the servant can plow through his discouragement knowing that God will make him to be a covenant for the people. The servant of the Lord is a means by which God establishes a new relationship with his people. That's why dear friends we often talk about people who are religious yet may not have a relationship with the Lord. To be in a relationship with the Lord is not just an emotional feeling but a real bond a real unity with God And the only way we can have that relationship with God is through Jesus. It's not so much that we have a relationship with Jesus, but we have a relationship with God through Jesus. Jesus is a means by which we can enter into a new relationship with God. Why? Because of what He has done for us. What He has done for God. He has become the covenant, the contract the bond between us and God. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper, as we will do tonight in the evening service, we recount the words of Jesus who gave bread to his disciples during the Passover meal. And he said, this bread that he's giving to them is no longer the, the bread of a, of a Passover meal. Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, a cup after they have eaten, saying, this cup, That is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' blood was the means by which God established a new covenant, a new relationship between us and God. Friends, we cannot have a relationship with God outside of Jesus. We cannot have a relationship with God outside of Jesus. If we don't have Christ, we don't have God. If we don't have Christ, we don't have a relationship with God. That's why people who say, oh, I, God is my friend, or I, I got God, he's, he's got my back. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. That's why the only way for us to be reconciled to God is to turn away from our sin, from our rebellion, and embrace Christ. Christ receive Christ, follow Christ, trust in Christ. Well, friends, if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, if you haven't responded to Jesus, I would love to encourage you to do so this morning. And if you'd like to know more about what to do and how to do that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. If you don't craft Christ, you don't have God. God gave this servant as a covenant for His people. And the Lord will make... work effective you you, you remember how the, the servant was discouraged he says my I've labored in vain God says don't worry when I'm making you as a covenant for the people here's here are the effects look at verse 9 saying to the prisoners come out to those who are in darkness appear they shall feed along the ways on all bare heights, shall be, and, and on all bare heights shall be their pasture. In other words, God is saying to the servant, When I am giving you as a covenant to the people, you are going to speak to their prisoners and call them out, and they will come out. God promises, God promises that those in to who, who respond to Christ, those who hear the call of Christ. And turn their ways to him. God calls them, promises them. To bring them out of the prison of their darkness. Of their sin. Of their rebellion. And notice what God promises in verse 10. That they shall not hunger or thirst. That neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. And by springs of water God will guide them. God promises to all those to come to God. In Jesus. Through the servant. That God will provide for them. That God will protect them during their journey to God. To those who desire to respond to God, God will make even mountains become like a road. In other words, their path back to God will be clear. It will be under God's protection and it will be with God's provision. People who are considering to respond to God, to turn to Him, might often be assailed with doubts, with fears. The fear of whether or not they will be able to keep following God throughout their lives. The fear of what others will say if they hear that they have turned to God. There's all kinds of fears that we have when we hear the call of God to come back to Him. Oh friends, here God promises His provision and His protection for the journey back to God. God will not leave His people by themselves as they return to Him. Their return to God will be accompanied by God's provision and God's protection. And these promises that God gives to His servant about His work finalize with a call given to all creation to respond with singing. Look at verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Do you hear God desires, God leads the entire creation to come and manifest the joyfulness of God's salvation towards His people so that all creation is invited to sing for joy. Why would the creation be invited to sing for joy? Look at what verse 10, uh, verse 13 says, For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. In, every, in other words... Everything we have heard so far, everything God has revealed about the servant, about his mission, about his purpose, will ultimately be accomplished. Even though the servant was at first discouraged, even though he had many reasons to believe that his work was in vain, physically, when he left this earth, there's only about 500 out of the entire nation who gathered around him. There were not many results. There were not results that you could you could put on a billboard and, and say how, how great of, of, a, of a result Jesus left when he ascended to heaven. Humanly speaking, the results were meager. 500 who knew about him, about 120 who really started organizing themselves, and really 12 that were his, his devoted followers. That's not a lot. And yet, God told his servant, don't worry. I will make your work fruitful. All the nations will come. And all it took was to wait 10 more days after the ascension of Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, peoples from all nations began hearing the word of the gospel and responding in thousands. Friends, we have today, this gospel continues to be proclaimed all creation is called to rejoice that the mission that god has given his servant will succeed now in the midst of that great singing of joy that all creation is called to have we get to read verse 14 but zion said the lord has forsaken me my lord has forgotten me oh friends While all creation was called upon to sing for joy, the very next thing we read is that the people of God are accusing God of forsaking them and forgetting them. We will leave the rest of this chapter for next week. As we will look at a different path of discouragement. If the servant of the Lord was discouraged but trusted in the Lord, we will see next week how the people of God, even after all these promises... They were discouraged, but instead of trusting in the Lord, they accused the Lord. We will leave that for next week. But this morning, as we have gathered here, we have gotten to hear a a testimony, half of this message of of promises that God gives to His people who are discouraged. Friends, to recognize that even the servant of the Lord was discouraged. And when we deal with discouragement, notice that it's nothing new or nothing different than even what the servant of the Lord Himself has experienced and yet what we can learn from him is that he turned to the Lord away from himself away from the results that he expected and he put his confidence and his affections on the reward that the Lord promised to give friends some of us live in this time in which we don't see the results we want and the rewards that God promises are still part of the future in this tension, we're called to live. In this tension, we're called to worship. And I pray that as a people who deal with various kinds of discouragements, that we would turn to the servant of the Lord and trust just like he did in the promises of God. Would you pray with me? Father, you are a God who knows our discouragements. None of them are hidden from you. Yet, O Lord, you have spoken tenderly, compassionately, lovingly to your people. And you have given your people ample reasons, ample evidence to trust in you, to rely on you, to believe your word. O Lord, would you guide our hearts? Would you grant our hearts faith to take your word for what it is? That it is indeed like a sharp sword, that is indeed like, like an arrow that is polished to battle against the doubts of our hearts, to battle against the idolatries of our hearts. Lord, would you bind our hearts to you? Give us confidence in you. Father, may we be a people who trust in you, even in times of discouragement. We pray that you would help us do so for the glory of your great name. In the name of Christ, we pray, who have come to be our servant, your servant for us. In his name we pray.